Welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to explore why we do what we do with researchers, authors, and practitioners in a conversational setting in order to bring those insights to you. And I'm Christina Grovert. I'm a professor in behavioral economics at the University of Copenhagen and also the co-founder of Impactually, a behavioral science consultancy. Wait, 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 wait. What What's going on here? Why Why is Christina here? I mean, Christina, n- no offense, we love you, but I thought this episode was going to be on dating and love. And, and you're a professor of behavioral economics. Well, Tim invited me to join you guys today because we're talking about something that I've spent quite some time thinking about these past months, romance and dating during the pandemic. I would love to contribute some interesting ideas about how to make dating more efficient by using game theory. Ah, okay. I I get it. I guess hearing your voice just caught me off guard. And Tim, I thought this was going to be the episode uh, with Logan Urie. Yeah, well, it is, Kurt, and we'll introduce Logan in just a minute. But first, let's welcome Christina as our first ever Groove Partner. Yeah, absolutely. Christina is going to join us in our grooving session for a couple of reasons. First, she's already familiar with Logan's work on dating. And second, she's got some very cool ideas about how to apply game theory to dating apps through this very personal experience that she's got. Okay, so I was just confused, which is a pretty normal state for me. So I get over it really quickly. And it makes sense. And it sounds fantastic. So welcome to Behavioral Grooves, Christina. Well, thanks, Gert and Tim. I'm so excited to be your very first groove partner. This invitation is especially fun for me since I had a really great conversation with Logan just last week. And she had some pretty insightful tips to share. I also use the dating app she works at, an app called Hinge, as a basis for my article on applying game theory to dating apps. But isn't it time we introduce your conversation with Logan? Absolutely. This is going to be fun. All right. Logan Yuri has a remarkable background. She studied psychology at Harvard, was a TED fellow, then became a behavioral scientist at Google, then became a dating coach, and is currently the director of relationship science at the dating app Hinge, where she leads a research team dedicated to helping people find love. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I just want to point out that she ran Google's behavioral science team, which most of us know as the Irrational Lab, and is the author of How to Not Die Alone, which is why we connected with her. So her work has appeared in the New York Times and the Atlantic, among a variety of other media outlets, as well as on HBO and the BBC. And heads up, she's a featured speaker at South by Southwest 2021. Our conversation with Logan focused on the challenges people face in getting prepared for dating, making the most of their dating experiences and maintaining great relationships once they've landed in one. And of course, she shared her insights into how to overcome some of the common hurdles and to make the most out of each phase of the dating life. You'll hear her talk about why moving from romanticizer or maximizer to satisficer can make a big difference in your relationships and in your life. She talks about the Monet effect, and she also talks about how we need to work hard to overcome some of our biggest biases, like the fundamental attribution error or negativity bias. And we got to talk with her about why you should set the default to always having a second date. Didn't you guys also talk to Logan a little bit about her communal living conditions? And I think there was something about that all of us need more significant others. 
Yes, yes, we did. And <laughs> that was really cool. It made some interesting discussion as well. Uh, Groovers, we should just point out that the F word features in our conversation since it's the title of one of her books chapters. Just want to let you know ahead of time so nobody gets freaked out. Yeah, we don't want you getting freaked out by the F word. There you go. And we also want you to know that after our conversation with Logan, we'll rejoin Christina for our grooving session. Sounds great, guys. I'll talk to you soon. All right, everybody. So sit back with a fine romance gateau and a generous pour of dating apps and enjoy our conversation with Logan Yuri. Logan Yuri, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for this conversation. We are too. This is, man, we are just super psyched about your book and excited that it's doing so well. But we have to get started with a speed round because that's the way we do it. So we want to find out, would you prefer to travel on a, tra- on a fixed itinerary or no itinerary at all? Fixed itinerary. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right. Would you prefer to have dinner with your favorite musician or your favorite sports star? Favorite academic. Oh, <laughs> yeah, nice, nice. You know what's even even better about that is that the question was actually written as your favorite musician, favorite sports star, or favorite researcher, and I just left out the favorite researcher, and you just intuned that. You just <laughs> brought it up. I well, mean, we, it, I'm not the most into music or sports, but I do feel like when I've met my heroes, they've been people like Ira Glass or Dan Ariely. Oh, that not that Ira Glass is an academic, but you know, in the in the nerdy realm, that, that's okay. That is yeah. that yeah. is quite okay. I'm I'm glad this is going to be good. All right, coffee or tea? Coffee. No okay. hesitation there, or is that just a? I mean, I don't like being addicted to caffeine, but at this moment in time, I am. So I could give up tea, but I couldn't give up coffee. Oh, okay. Oh, All right. interesting way to frame it. Okay. All right. So the last question. So is it a good idea to go out with anyone that you have a spark with? Oh, I should be answering faster. Um, yeah, give it a try, but be, be aware of the myths of the spark. Be aware of, of what could lead you astray. So you shouldn't disqualify someone for the spark, but you shouldn't necessarily enter into a relationship with them because it's present. Okay, so what is this mythical spark that uh, you talk about in the book? Yeah, so for your listeners, I have worked both in a one-on-one capacity with people who are looking for relationships, right, as a dating coach, as a matchmaker, and I've worked in a more formal realm, now leading this uh, relationship science team at Hinge and having led the behavioral science team at Google. And so in that one-on-one coaching capacity, people would come to me and tell me about their dates, tell me about who they were looking for. And a lot of times people would say something like, I met up with this guy. He was great. We had a lot to talk about. Really fun date. Um, Yeah, I'm not going to see him again. I would just be so perplexed. And I would say, what are you talking about? And then the man might say, well, I just didn't feel the spark. And so they were going on dates and having a good time, but then writing people off because of this so-called spark. And so the spark has sort of become my nemesis. This idea that you're going to feel this instant chemistry, this pang of excitement. And that's just not true. And so Am I allowed to curse on your podcast? You you can curse all Shit, day long yes. on this. <laughs> okay, well, uh, I have a chapter that's called Fuck the Spark. 
<laughs> and it's all about this idea. And specifically, I debunk three myths around the spark. The first one is that the spark can't grow over time. And we know that that's not true. <clears throat> A lot of great couples formed. Let me see. <clears throat> A lot of great couples did not feel the spark in the beginning. And even as the book, even over the last week, has gotten more popular, more popular, I've heard from people who say, I knew my now husband for three years and we were friends. And then we did this project together and we started to like each other more and now we're married. Or people, you know, I personally knew my husband for eight years before we got married. There's just so many examples of somebody growing on you. And we can go into some of the reasons, things like the mere exposure effect and the fact that sometimes just being around something makes you like it more, right? I'm sure from a music perspective, you probably have some stats around you know, the first time you hear a song, the third time you hear a song, the 10th time you hear a song. I mean, sometimes when I'm in the grocery store, I'm like, oh, I love this song. And what that actually means is like, I've heard of this song. <laughs> right, right. Especially exactly. like the longer it's been since it came out. Um, but yeah, because of the mere exposure effect, you know, someone can really grow on you. So if you don't feel the spark on the first date, it doesn't mean that they're not a good match. And some people just don't give the spark on a first date. The second myth is that if you feel the spark, then it's necessarily a good thing. And this is sort of what your question was. And the reason why this is not true is that some people are just very sparky. They give the spark to a lot of people. You know, they might be really hot or really charismatic or really narcissistic. And there's actually a lot of interesting psychological phenomenon going on where they want you to like them. So they are doing the things that they know to do to make you like them. And they are creating a feeling of the spark, but that's actually more a reflection of who they are and what their needs are than something that's emerging as a dynamic between the two of you. And so if you feel the spark, maybe it's a great relationship, but merely having it doesn't mean that there's potential there. And that a lot of times people can confuse anxiety for chemistry. And so you should beware of the spark. And the third one is that if you have a spark, then the relationship is necessarily viable. And so this might seem kind of silly, but I really do know couples where one of the people comes to me and says, if it weren't for the, our how we met story, we never would have gotten married, but we had this super romantic rom-com meet cute. And we just thought that we were meant to be and that we were soulmates. And how could we have been the only two English speaking people in this town in South Korea teaching English and, you know, we fell in love and everything was so great and blah, blah, blah. And then like married miserably for a few years. And then finally they're just like, we actually never had anything in common. We just like <laughs> thought this story was really romantic. Um, and so who cares how you met? That's like 0.0001% of the duration of your relationship. It's just really irrelevant, but people get very caught up, especially we'll get into this, I think on the show, but people who are romanticizers, people who are really focused on the soulmate, loving love, the whole fairy tale, they take, they place a disproportionate amount of emphasis on how they met and then they're led astray by that. And so my advice in the book after saying fuck the spark is to look for the slow burn. Mm. And I imagine we have some slow burns listening to the show today, if I know anything about behavioral science. And so these are people who are maybe not the most charismatic initially, but they're really solid people. They're reliable. They're smart. They're helpful and they grow on you. And so the first time you meet them, you might not be blown away, but if you give them a few more dates, you'll really be impressed by the type of person that emerges. And so 
yeah, go for the slow burn, the person who you like more each time versus that really sparky person who makes a great first impression, but maybe each time after that, you're actually sort of disappointed by them. And then the chapter after that is called make the second date the default. And that's sort of the same idea. It's saying instead of going on the first date saying, should I see them again or not? Create this rule that you will see them again. And that rule is going to help you identify more slow burn people. Hmm. I I loved that uh, that chapter because I remember working with a guy who was in his late 40s and he said he'd never been on a second date with anyone. He'd been on hundreds and hundreds of first dates. And I, I just said, you didn't give any of them a try. I said, well, there was nothing there. There was no spark. Mm-hmm. And and I thought and it it was so counterintuitive to me at the time. How do you is is this difficult mm-hmm. to persuade someone to get beyond that to move you know to make the the second date a default? Um, yeah, you know, I'm just reflecting on what you said. My initial reaction was that this was a guy who was a slow burn who people weren't giving a second date to. Like that way, as soon before you said the second half, I was like, oh, poor guy. He's a slow burn person and he's not sparking with anyone. And I, everyone, you know, whether he dates men or women, they should read the book and they should give him a second chance. But now I have no empathy for this person. <laughs> because if you're in your 40s and you haven't learned that, you know, a first date isn't everything. Also, that many people like then you're not sparking with anyone. Yeah, that is literally he should be the poster boy for fuck the spark because I mean, now I'm going in a different direction, but like I called the book How to Not Die Alone. And it's a provocative title. And sometimes people tell me that it's triggering to them. And then I say, yeah, it's supposed to be triggering. It's supposed to stop you in your tracks and have you say, okay, I'm on a path and where am I headed? Am I headed towards dying alone? Well, I don't want to think about that, but maybe you are. And if you don't want to be headed towards that path and you do want to be headed towards a relationship, then you need to take action and change course. And so for that guy, he is so clearly making decisions over and over again that lead him down a path. And look, I have no idea what's going on for him and maybe he doesn't want to be in a relationship, but if he does, then he can't keep doing what he's doing. He needs to make make a change. And so the whole book is about identifying your dating blind spots, which for that guy, I would say is either the romanticizer or the maximizer where he has unrealistic expectations of relationships and unrealistic expectations of his future partner. And he does need to be jolted into making a change because if not, he'll never get on the path towards a relationship. Yeah. It's really interesting. Again, when you were talking about the, the, spark kind of components and you you listed those off i was looking thinking back many 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 years back when i was actually dating um and there was this one date that i had that again it would be the perfect rom-com where you know it was going okay it wasn't great it wasn't anything else with that but it was uh, the reach in for the kiss on that first date and right then it started raining just a soft uh-huh. gentle rain in front of us river and it was just you know but there but i didn't feel the spark but obviously this this other uh you know the woman that i was with did and because then it was after that it was like oh she was just crazy following me and i was like oh but we didn't really have a good time except for we accidentally got a good timing on on a kiss and um you know that was and and maybe that says more about me than it says about you know i must be more of that slow burn but um no no i think that says something about her which is that in her mind that was a sign from the universe that you were some sort of soulmate because suddenly you were playing out this 
fantasy from some John Hughes movie. I mean, who knows? We don't know. We don't know what she felt about you before the kiss. And maybe she was interested the whole time. So we don't know if that was like the inciting incident, but let's say it was, she was just like, well, if this thing happened, then he must be the one. And so I should pursue it. Whereas you were like, okay, that was a cute memory, but didn't like her before. (laughs) Also, there's a bit of peak end rule in there, right? It ended on a high. Exactly. Yeah. She was disproportionately remembering the end. We haven't really talked about the book overall, but so maybe we should actually backtrack just a bit. Logan, would you mind just giving an overview? You you talked about the importance of not dying alone, but but really what's the practical takeaways that that people are going to have from reading the book? Yeah, so I'll just start with the frame, which is that it's a step-by-step guide to modern dating. It starts with you're single, you don't want to be. How can we help you figure out what's holding you back? There's a quiz about your dating blind spots. And it's all about saying, what are the patterns of behavior that you're repeating that are getting in your way, but that you can't identify on your own? And let's help you overcome those. And it goes into lots of stories about people who have had these types and how they've overcome them. And then it, okay. So then uh, the first third of the book is getting ready. It's all about teaching you what you need to know about your blind spots, about attachment theory, about what matters more and less than we think for long-term relationships. The second third is getting out there. And it is how to use the dating apps so that they work for you, how to meet people in real life, which is obviously will be more relevant after the pandemic. Um, Fuck the spark, why you should go on the second date, really just identifying things like deal breakers versus pet peeves. And then the last third is okay, now you're in a relationship. How do you not lose it? How do you not fuck it up? And so it's about uh, treating relationship transitions as decision points Mm. and transitioning through them by deciding, not sliding. You know, should we be exclusive? What does that mean? Should we move in together? And then there's these breakup chapters that people haven't been asking me as many questions about, but I really love the breakup chapters. It's you know, should I say or should I go? How to break up with someone and then how to get over a breakup. And then the last chapter is if you didn't break up, then should we get married? And it asks you questions that you should ask yourself before getting married. And then the last chapter is about this idea of intentional love. How do you create a relationship that shifts and evolves over time as the people in it evolve too? Yeah. And then I wanted to say this earlier, but the whole frame of it is taking behavioral science as the lens. So saying relationships are a series of decisions. You make good choices and you propel yourself to a great relationship. You make bad choices and you keep repeating the same patterns over and over and you end up in bad relationships or no relationships at all. And so that's step one. It's about identifying those things. And then of course, we all know that information doesn't lead to action. So the tips are based in behavioral science research. So things like if you reinforce identity, you can get someone to think of themselves as a voter and vote. Well, if you reinforce yeah. identity as a dater, then you can get someone to actually overcome their hesitation and date. That's the type of application that it uses. Well, and that, that was part of the reason we we wanted you on because, I mean, the, the subtitle for the book, The Surprising Science That Will Help uh, You Find Love, right? I mean, the, the book is filled with behavioral science insights and on why we do what we do 
as it relates to these dating faux pas and dating good things too as well. I mean, it's not just not just a list of all the things that that we screw up, right? It, it is a list oh, yeah. of, of 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 both good and bad and helping out. And I really love that you bring in a bunch of these cognitive biases that we have, yeah. right? And and in particular, you wrote um, you know, this idea of um I think it was chapter 12 where you're talking about um, you know, negativity bias and the fundamental mm-hmm. attribution error. You kind of talk a lot about those two. Is there anything you talk about a lot throughout, but, but those two in general, what, what were some of the, the key things for that? Yeah, I will. And then I would just say like, you know, it's hard to talk about the book because it is so many things, right? Like a lot of big ideas books are just like give and take. Some people are givers, some people are takers. Here's what a matcher is. And then the whole book is an explanation. But like, this isn't just one idea. It's a frame. And then each chapter is like a stage of it. And so, yeah, it is harder to summarize. But I would just say for anyone listening, like the tone is kind of like a tough love coach. (laughs) And it's trying to be funny and it's trying to be helpful. And like the book is a self-help book. It has exercises. It has things to do. And so it's sort of trying to be like, you're not going to learn behavioral science 101 from the book. And if you know behavioral science, you're not going to be like blown away by the new research, but it's really the application and the exercises that I think sets it apart from being just a love guru book or trying to be like thinking fast and slow. Like it's somewhere in between. I spend a lot of time debriefing with people after their dates. And maybe many mm. people do. That's what you might do with your friends. But I've just done this on such a larger scale because I'm seeing so many dating coaching clients who are going on so many dates. And then in our sessions, a decent amount of time of the session is, what dates have you been on? What happened? Are you seeing them again? Why or why not? Right? And so I just know why people say yes. <coughs> I know why people say yes or no to second dates, which is some of the stuff we've talked about. And one of the things is that, you know, this idea of the fundamental attribution error that when someone is late, we assume that they are a rude person or inconsiderate. They just don't value you as opposed to if you're late, you can identify the fact that you really did try to leave, but your Uber canceled on you twice and the subway was down and your car was broken. And so it's very easy for you to justify your behavior, but not theirs. And so when you explain that to someone and you help them see, well, what's the compassionate mode? What's the compassionate way of seeing it? And especially on a first date, and it's just saying to someone, you know, give them another try. If this person canceled on you five times before you even got to the date and then showed Mm -hmm. up 20 minutes late and then did a bunch of other things, yeah, that's becoming a pattern. I think you should be aware of that. But instead of looking for reasons to say no, especially if you're someone like the guy that Tim mentioned who was 40, you know, (laughs) in his 40s and saying no to everyone, how about shifting to reasons to say yes? And um, if you're familiar with the philosopher and writer and the creator of the School of Life, Elan de Botton, he talks about um, using your imagination. And I think this is really good advice. And he was talking more about like, you know, dating in your 50s and when maybe people aren't like as traditionally attractive as when you were dating in your 20s. It's a different thing. But he was saying, use your imagination. Does someone have a really beautiful smile? Do you love someone's eyes? Do you love the sound of their laugh? And how can you become more creative about looking for the reasons to say yes to someone versus saying no? And that goes back to your question about the negativity bias. And so this is the idea from, um, well, I learned about it through Helen Fisher, who's a biological anthropologist. And she talked about the fact that it's actually a an evolutionarily 
smart move to look to basically be aware of negative things. And so she said to me, if you have five ex-girlfriends and one of them wants to kill you, it's a good idea to know which one that is. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great example, right? (laughs) Yeah. And so- for theirs, you know, we, if you think about it, and I'm sure people have heard this before, but you're getting feedback at your job and they tell you 10 good things and one bad thing. And what keeps you, you know, what are you thinking about later? What are you reporting to your friends and family? The one bad thing. And we just really do focus on the bad thing. And so the application here is if it's so easy for your brain to go to the bad thing, if it's so easy for your brain to find reasons to say no, then you need to override that by actually looking for the reasons to say yes, especially if you are someone who's tendency is to be too picky, then how can you actually work hard at finding reasons to say yes. <laughs> I loved, uh, one of the things that I found uh, fantastic were the appendices where you actually have these mm-hmm. these um, these forms to fill out, right? You have to answer the questions you really need to think about. And um, one of them was about uh, the tough conversation, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. right? The critical conversation. Mm-hmm. And, and what, what reminded me, it reminded me of a conversation we had with Shelly Archambault, who is the CEO of, um, of a, a high-tech company in Silicon Valley. And as a young woman, she had decided she was going to be a CEO. So pretty much anybody she dated, she needed to let them know that the most successful CEOs have stay-at-home partners. And so she had a critical conversation very early on in her relationship with Scotty, her, her husband, to say, if I'm on, I'm on this path, and if we're going to get together, you're I'm going to need the, you to be a stay home dad. Are you cool with that? And one of the things, so I wanted to ask you, how early do you need to have? How early in the relationship do you need to have this critical conversation? Because she had it very early on, and it, it was very successful. But that's just an N of one. Tim, I'm glad you really liked all of the practical things, the exercises throughout the book, and the you know, what you referenced, the crucial conversations planning doc in the appendix. And this is something that I actually started doing for myself for work conversations. And so I would find that I was like, I really want to pitch something to my manager at work. I need to figure out how am I going to start the conversation? What do I want from it? Where could it go wrong? What point do I want to end on? What do I want my tone to be? And just spending 30 minutes before an important meeting. And this wasn't all the time. This was a few times a year. I just felt like those conversations went really well. And sort of the takeaway there is that if something's important to you, why wouldn't you prep for it? And a conversation is an important moment. And so I've created a version of this for conversations in general, but in the book, I apply it to hard conversations. And I specifically made it in the book for a breakup. And so I have a whole chapter about how to break up with someone compassionately, and then you can frame your breakup in terms of this crucial conversation stock. But your question is about in general, I think when you bring up something hard. And so there's a few directions I can take this. And so one is I have a chapter about decide, don't slide. And this is the idea that there's two different ways to transition through relationship milestones. Some couples decide they have intentional conversations. Some couples slide and they're just sort of on this relationship escalator and they move to the next floor. And so deciding might be, I think we should move in together. Here's my reasons why. Moving into me means let's see how we get along. It's not a guarantee that we're going to get married. It's just the next stage. What does moving in mean to you? And then maybe the person says to me, it means we're going to get married. And then they say, oh, well, seems like we should talk about this more before doing it because we're not on the same page. Sliding would be, 
well, my lease is up in two months and I'm spending a lot of time here. Should I just move in? And then the other person's like, yeah, how much is your rent? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just save money and move in together. I'm not saying that that's not practically important, but can you also have the conversation around what it means to you? And so the research shows that couples that decide their way through transitions are happier, more successful, and um, actually have fewer incidents of infidelity. And so it's really interesting to think about how can you decide your way through each moment. So in the book, I identify two of these big decision points to relationship milestones, defining the relationship. So things like, are we exclusive? What does exclusivity mean to us? Um, Are we monogamous? Um, All of those different things. And, you know, do we have labels, et cetera, and then moving in together, but people should do this throughout the relationship. And so I think for your question, you're asking, when is the first time to kind of have some of these serious conversations? So one conversation might be, you know, what are your intentions? Like a lot of times people say to me, I've been dating for a while. Like I'm ready to find someone. How do I tell that to someone else without coming on too strong? Mm -hmm. And so for them, it's sort of an art of how do you show the self-awareness without being needy? How do you say something like, Hey, I know that I'm looking to get married and have kids in a few years. What are you looking for? Versus, Hey, don't waste my time. Like, are you just trying to have fun or what? Like, right. Like you don't want to be like accusatory or putting the person in a backing them into a corner. You just want to be self-aware and say like, this is where I'm at. Where are you at? Um, The other thing that's happened during the pandemic is that people are actually having hard conversations much earlier than they would have otherwise, because you need to talk about COVID safety. You need to say, Mm. will you be wearing a mask? Are you living with anyone who's at risk? Um, Will we be socially distancing? I mean, even, you know, first kisses were already sort of hard for people. Now you are literally navigating a safety protocol. (laughs) And so it's just, you know, people are having hard conversations earlier, but I would actually say that's a good thing because you can wean out people that aren't good at having hard conversations and having hard conversations is important for long-term relationship success. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to go at, you bring up a really interesting piece about maximizers and satisficers in in the book, and it's just a it's a wonderful concept of just thinking about this. But it it hit me because I, we we've known people like this, and and I think uh, you you mentioned it a little bit when Tim was talking about you know his his person though they're either a romanticizer or a maximizer mm-hmm. on this. Can you tell tell our listeners what what is maximizers versus satisfiers and tell us the difference and is and is one better than the other when it comes to dating? Yeah. So uh, I'll go through this quickly, but yeah, basically in the book, I have a framework called the three dating tendencies, and these are a collection of the most common dating blind spots, and they each have unrealistic expectations of relationships. And so I said this word before, but the romanticizer, they have unrealistic expectations of relationships. They think it will all be the honeymoon period, the falling in love. They think love will find them. It won't require effort. There's a soulmate for them. When they find them, everything will be perfect. And that if the relationship itself feels like work, then they're doing it wrong. And the maximizer is someone who has unrealistic expectations of their partner. And so they're always wondering, could I be 5% happier? Is there someone out there who's 5% hotter, 5% funnier, 5% more ambitious? And they really feel like they want to turn over every stone and then find the perfect person. And they're obsessed with the objective right decision. And then the last one is the hesitator. They have unrealistic expectations of themselves. And these are people who don't put themselves out there, aren't going on dates, and they have a story in their head that goes like, I'll be ready to date when... 
when I lose 10 pounds, when I have a more impressive job title, when I figure out my apartment situation. And there's always like some day in the future when they'll be ready to date, but it's not now. And of course, they're underestimating the opportunity cost of getting better at dating and of figuring out who they want to be with. And so specifically the maximizer, that's definitely the majority of my clients. I think a lot of our cultural norms right now are pushing people towards being a maximizer, but the maximizer satisficer concept comes from this guy, Herbert Simon in the 1950s, a sociologist. And he says that satisficers set a bar, they have a certain expectation. And then when that expectation is met, then they make that choice and they commit to it. And a maximizer is always wondering what else is out there. And the maximizer is obsessed with the objective right decision. And the satisficer is more concerned or at least benefits from the subjective experience of making a decision that they're happy about. And so in the book, I give the example of somebody who is looking for an espresso machine and the maximizer spends many hours reading reviews. They get the Breville espresso machine that Wirecutter recommends. It arrives. They realize that occasionally the coffee tastes a little bit tart, you know, for the reason that reviewer number 22 mentioned, and they sort of regret the decision and they're stewing over their brewing. And then you have the satisficer that said, oh, I've heard of Nespresso. That seems like a good brand. They walk into the Nespresso store. They look at a few models. They pick one in their price range. They leave it and they say, oh, I love my Nespresso machine. And it's not that they're any less smart. It's that they found something that satisfied them and they committed to it and they feel good about the decision. And so maximizers think that they're always right and that they're doing life right because it's all about the objective right choice. But really who's happier, the satisficer with their Nespresso machine or the person who's slightly upset about the Breville. And so <laughs> in dating, I see so many maximizers and they just would be happier if they were satisficers. It doesn't mean that they settle. It means that you set a bar, you figure out the kind of person you want to be with. And then when you find someone like that, you commit to them and you make it work. And I, after doing research for my book and really thinking about this concept have tried to be a satisficer and it's been going really well. I bought a car, which is the biggest thing I've ever bought in 48 hours and it felt great. And I really like my car and I wasn't, I, I never worry about, oh, if I had done four months more of research, would I have liked my car more? Instead, I'm just like, oh, I'm really glad that I bought this car and it, it suits my needs. And it was also a pleasant experience of buying it. Well, as part of the book too, you, you bring up then the secretary problem, which I mm -hmm. thought was a fascinating way of looking at this satisficing, but with some hard kind of analytical ways of doing it, kind of an algorithm. Can you tell, tell our listeners about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I should give credit to the book Algorithms to Live By, which is where I learned about this. And also they, it was their idea to apply it. And so in Algorithms to Live By, they talk about the secretary problem. And so this is a mathematical riddle in which you're saying to someone, you have 100 applicants to become your secretary. You have to interview them one at a time. After each one, you say yes or no. And so the kind of mathematical part is this optimal stop theory. At what point should you stop and say, um, this person is good enough, right? Because if you go on for too long, then maybe all the good people are at the beginning. If you uh, choose too quickly, you don't know who else was out there. And so the mathematically correct answer is 37%. After 37%, you should say, who is the single best applicant of the group? And that person is now your meaningful benchmark. And then you hire the next person who is as good 
or better than that initial benchmark. And so the idea here is you get a sense of what's out there and then you choose someone in that category. And so with dating, um, they say it like this, you won't know how many people you're going to date total, but you might estimate how many people, how many years you're going to be dating. So let's say you're dating from 18 to 40. What's 37% of those years? It's 26.1. So after 26.1 years, you've dated enough people to have a meaningful benchmark. So sit down and say, who is the single best person? Now you have that benchmark and then you commit to the next person you meet who you like as much or more than that person. And sometimes people hear this and they roll their eyes and they're like, I'm past 26.1 and (laughs) this is so rational. And they're just like, they even de fact them saying 26.1 is annoying to them. But the whole point is that you've already dated someone who probably would make a pretty good partner and that it's not about meeting everyone in the world. It's about finding someone and committing to them. And hopefully that helps them see that they're not going to feel 100% certain about someone. It's about choosing a person and committing. And I just think people, you know, to use more annoying percentages, I think people have this <laughs> obsession with partner selection, like it's 99% partner selection and 1% making it work. But that's just not true. A lot of relationships is once you found someone putting the effort in to make it work. Yeah. I, I love it. Bring all those statistics on, by the way. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. Um I, I, I hope you don't mind that we're like totally bouncing around. There's nothing no, really, you know, contiguous about this. But one of the things uh, that I was that I think listeners might be interested in is hearing about the Monet effect, which is a mm-hmm. really cool aspect of which you you coined, right? This is this yeah. is you, your little ditty. Uh, tell sure. us about the Monet effect. Yeah. So one common issue that I was seeing in dating is that people match on the apps and then they text for a really long time. And they think that, oh, this is a safety thing. I'm just getting to know them. I want to know their personality. But what's happening is that they're building up the person in their head and they're creating a fantasy of them. And then when they meet that person, even if the person is great, they're disappointed because the person isn't great in the way that the fantasy of them suggested. And so one of the reasons why um, is this idea that when our brains have incomplete information, they fill in the gaps with more positive information. And so let's say Tim wrote in his dating profile, I like music. My brain goes, oh, I bet we like the same music. And if you do that over and over again, I'm constantly creating this fantasy of you. I'm creating this idea of, uh, of you in a more positive light. And, you know, this is, you know, for people who aren't familiar with Monet, his paintings um, utilize a technique where up close, it's a bunch of, of little dots or specks, but then far away, it looks really good. And so the idea here is from far away, it looks perfect. And up close, and this is a quote from Clueless, up close, it's a big old mess. And so you know, <laughs> you're know you projecting this image of perfection and then up close, you don't like it. And so the solution is to get to the date faster. Stop these like, you know, three week, four week, you know, month long text change, because you're just going to contribute to the Monet effect. And you're much better off actually just meeting up with the person or doing a video date and having a true sense of who they are and not letting this Monet effect affect you. And then your listeners might be interested in hearing how this affects CEO hiring, which is that when a company is hiring a CEO, they can choose from an internal promotion or an external person. Well, with the external people, you only know their wins. You only know the positives. And when you hear about their resume, you hear CTO, you fill in the gaps and say, oh, it must have been a CTO for many years and doing a great job. 
Whereas like in reality, maybe they were the CTO at like a startup one summer. And then with the internal candidate, you know, the good and the bad. And so what we see in the research is that external CEOs are hired at larger salaries, but often perform worse than internal hires. And it's because that hiring committee is being affected by the Monet effect and filling in the gaps to make that candidate seem more positive than they actually are. Yeah. That's that was fantastic. <laughs> which is which is what you know I, I love about you know Tim is as I I I you know you we, appreciate we, me from a distance. Is yeah, that- it's, it's like as long as you're far away, you're really good. So really there you go. That. Maybe <laughs> Zoom is a good medium for you. Yes, it really is. It's it's perfect. Our relationship thrives because of it, Logan. There is one other sort of a slightly off-topic thing that I'd like to ask you about, and that is uh, you've engaged in kind of a communal living experience. Oh yeah. And can <laughs> can you just talk a little bit about that? I don't I don't want to, you know, be uncomfortably specific, so that's why I'm kind of being generally vague. Oh sure, yeah. I mean, Kurt, do you know what he's talking about? The reason why I live here is like shades darker than what you might think. <laughs> Well, let's hear. Let as, as much as you want to share, let's hear. No, 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 it's fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. So last year at the beginning of the pandemic, my fiance, now husband, was diagnosed with a rare form of bone cancer. Ooh. And so, you know, this was like spring of last year, just like as things were really getting very chaotic. And um, yeah, he had to have a below the knee Uh, leg amputation. And it's been like a very dramatic incident in our life. And we had like a last minute wedding in the park. Um, We even had like a foot roast where all of our friends made fun of him, made fun of cancer, made fun of amputations and, you know, trying to do our best to have some levity. But, you know, it was really hard. He was in the hospital a lot, like really intense chemo and I was very isolated. And so one day we went to visit our friends, Kristen and Phil, and Kristen is behavioral scientist, Kristen Berman, and they start this co-owned communal living place where it's a a communal house, a communal kitchen, a communal backyard, and then some one-bedroom apartments. And we were just like, oh, they're having so much fun. They're living life. Like, you know, we should move in. And we got really lucky. They had a one bedroom on the first floor that was just opening up. And so last August we moved in and it's been amazing. And we've had a ton of support and I love being around Kristen and Phil. They're very old friends of ours. We have some other close friends who live here. We've become close with the other people. And I just wrote this article that came out in January in the New York times, modern love column called we needed more significant others. Mm -hmm. And this is the idea that people nowadays expect to get all of their needs met by their significant other. And, you know, oftentimes our significant other can't or isn't interested in meeting those needs, right? So things like you love talking about sports, but your partner's not interested or you want to work out and your partner doesn't like doing that. And so you should look for these OSOs, these other significant others who can fill those roles. And so the thesis of the article is that we all need OSOs, especially right now. And that Radish, this community that Kristen and Phil started, has really been like the best OSO solution to a really challenging time. And, you know, my hope with people reading that is that even though maybe not everybody wants to live in a commune, um, but like, how can you find more of these people in your life and how can you invest in those relationships? Well, and particularly, as you said, in these trying times, right, where mm-hmm. you you might have had some of those OSOs, is that the the right term for, mm-hmm. for that? Uh, in, in your life 
beforehand, like you'd go after work and you go hang out with some people from work and you'd get that sports talk or you'd get that, uh, you know, uh, whatever it is that you, you need from, from that person that you don't, it isn't happening now. And so I think we need to be very intentional. And I love, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> when we talked with Kristen about this, this, she didn't go into all of the, the, the nice uh, explanation of it. She just, yeah, we, we, we all live together and, and, you know, share the, the, the work on, on different pieces of it. So it's, it's fantastic to, to have those communities and to build them. And particularly in this time, we need to be really purposeful about trying to make sure that we get those people in our lives. And again, to your point, maybe not everybody living in a commune, but there are definitely things that you can do in order to make sure you keep those connections that if you have them or build those connections, if you don't. Yeah. And I should say, I, I get, well, in the article, I was sure to mention that we have extremely strict COVID protocol. Everybody works from home. They are very conscious of the fact that my husband's going through chemo. And so, you know, we have, you know, knock on wood, no, no COVID incidents, nothing. And it, everyone takes it very, very, very seriously. And so far it's been a safe and really happy way to spend the pandemic. Well, and, and, you know, as we talk about the, you know, the pods that we have, if, you know, this is your extended family now. And so mm -hmm. that's, that's what that is. And I think, uh, again, one of the things that we talked about with Kristen is that, Hey, this would have been something at the beginning of, of when this all happened that could have been encouraged with, uh, through through the government or other factors to say, pick this this pod that you are going to to be around and, and to make sure because there is this element of loneliness and isolation that happens with the uh, quarantines and and just general social distancing that's going on. So um, it's one of those learnings that you know if if or when you know another pandemic hits, those are some things that we ought to be thinking about in advance. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the point is not everybody wants to live in a commune, but OSOs would be great for everyone. And what are you doing to find your OSOs, to invest in them, to ask for help and all of that? You know, we like to talk about music and we don't want to put anybody on the spot. So let me just say that, Logan. And uh, and I'm saying that because um, I, I don't want anybody to be nervous about it, but I, we're just kind of curious about what's on your playlist right now. And, you know, do you have a COVID playlist? Did, it, did anything change, you know, pre-pandemic uh, pre to during pandemic? Yeah. So I did mention this to Tim and Kurt before, but I would not consider myself cool about music. <laughs> I like music, right? There's people who don't really like music, but you know, I split my time between listening to my Spotify playlists and podcasts with probably a lot of time on podcasts. Um, yeah. I tend to like certain albums or certain musicians and then play them over and over again. And so right. I've really liked Chance the Rapper since his 2016 album coloring book. And so I've, I've listened to that many, many times and you know, whenever he has a new song, I'll listen to it over and over again. But yeah, I basically, I have a playlist called Feeling Great. And it's sort of a mindset reset. And I've been adding songs to it for the last three or four years. It, before I gave a TED Talk, I would jam out to it before I have a big interview. I listen to it and it's songs that make me feel great. It's jump, it's pump up songs. I'm always looking for other people's feeling great songs. Um on Spotify, if I listen to something, I'll move it to the like, liked songs. And then if it's good enough on like songs, I'll move it to feeling great. And so, <laughs> you know, it's gotten pretty long, but I'll listen to it over and over and over again. And so I'm really not 
finding that much new music. I'm more using music to get into a mood. And these are songs, some of them I've liked, you know, since I was in fifth grade. And the last thing I'll say, embarrassingly, is that when Spotify gave me my artist of the decade for like, let's say I started listening in 2011 and to 2020, it was the Hamilton original <laughs> recording. <Yes. soundtrack. laughs> and so probably from October, 2016, when I first saw the show until let's say April, 2017, when I saw the show again, I did not listen to any other music other than Hamilton. <laughs> and so that was enough to make it my artist of the decade, even though now I'm like very sick of those songs. And I've kind of been taking a break from it since spring of 2017. Well, so which brings me to, to my question on that, because you do, you, you're talking like you listen to something for a long time. And we talked about the mere exposure effect at the very beginning, right? And this idea that you, the more you, you, see something and hear something, the more you like it. But there is a, a point where it, it, with music, with, with many things, if you get inundated with it too much, it can actually have the counter effect. And so obviously you, you reach that point with Hamilton. Do you reach that with, with others or are you just not listening to things quite enough or is there enough uh, variance in, in your listening habits that you don't think it's, it's taking place? It's honestly a good point. And I, I, do you know Seth Stevens Davidowitz? Yeah. Do you know who he is? He wrote the book, Everybody Lies. Yes. Yeah. He's one of my close friends and I love the way he thinks and he's so funny. And he wrote this really cool article a few years ago for the New York Times where he analyzed Spotify's data. And he found that that people often listen to the songs that were popular when they were 13 and 14. And mm -hmm. right. It's like you're going through this intense yeah. hormonal change. Music starts to feel so intense to you. Like my song from that time is the song glycerine by Bush. Do you know yeah. that song? Yeah. And it was like, I don't know if other people feel this way about it, but to me, it's like the most intense song I've ever heard. Cause like I was going through whatever emotional thing, some eighth grade breakup at the time. And so you just keep revisiting the songs from when you were 13, because you have these emotional connections to them. And then I have heard through the grapevine that at Spotify, they've seen that people are revisiting old favorites more than usual because we seek out familiar music and movies and TV shows, et cetera, when the world is very chaotic. And so I'm sure that there's like some sort of uh, graph that Seth could tell you that's like in the beginning you don't like a song then you hear it a bunch and you really like it at a certain point you get sick of it you need this many months off from it and then when you hear it again you're like oh yeah i'm really glad that i that i'm hearing that song again yeah yeah, yeah that's the, fantastic and the neuroscience backs that up by the way the neuroscience actually says that we the the imprint the the the, the like i think it's mm -hmm. it's a little broader time range but there there is an imprint that music makes on our brain that's indelible basically um yeah uh, we are doing a little bit of informal uh, research for Melanie Brooks at Columbia. Uh, she's interested in finding out whether people listen to music when they work. And so we want to ask you, do you listen to music when you work? I prefer to not have any noise around me when I work. If there is sound otherwise, then I have to play something to tune it out. So I wrote a lot of my book at a WeWork and it was pretty noisy, especially I would work near kind of the micro kitchen area. And so I would play the same playlist over and over again of, you know, instrumental music without words. I guess that's what instrumental music means. Um, <laughs> I would play instrumental music and I 
would listen, you know, same pattern. I would listen to it over and over again. It kind of just became like the white noise. And then I also have some like weird hippie YouTube videos that are like, you know, Reiki soundtracks or energy healing. I don't know. I just feel like they're like intense enough tones that they block out loud neighbors or traffic or things like that. But yeah, my vote would be no music. You fit with lots of, lots of the people that we've talked to, right? It's, it's no, or if they do, it is instrumental, non vocal um, elements that, that do it's, it's more, it acts more as that white noise, as you said, than, than others. So, all right, Logan, this has been fantastic. Thank you so yeah, much. Thank you. It's been really fun. fun. Really fun. And I, yeah. And I think it, it great insights and, and we appreciate so much the, the work that you've done and, and particularly, you know, bringing the behavioral science lens, as you said, into, into dating. Cause I Yay. think, Granted, I'm not in that in that world, and thankfully I'm not because I don't know if I could manage today's craziness. We didn't even talk about apps. We didn't even talk about any of the you know the, yeah, all this other stuff. Bigger, but bigger man, yeah, yeah. So, but thank you and, and appreciate cool. it. Cool. Yeah, much. it was really fun. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Kurt. It was a great conversation. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim, Christina, and I are going to groove on what we learned from our discussion with Logan, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our Disney fantasized, romanticized brains. Okay, we're going to have to come back to that. Wait, wait. I, I'm not sure if everybody is on the Disney romance. Oh, come brain. on. You weren't impacted by watching all of those Disney movies growing up where yeah. the, the, the prince comes and saves the princess and everything. They live happily ever after. Well, I definitely was. <laughs> <laughs> I guess Tim is just too old. Okay, so let's let's quickly get back to why we invited the ever amazing Christina Grover to join us because it is so wonderful to have you with us today. Well, guys, I'm so glad to be here. So let's get that out of the way first. Okay. All right. Well, listeners, there are a few reasons. First, um, we invited Christina here because we read an article that Christina wrote in Behavioral Scientist about online dating and how it's like game theory, where she mentions. Logan, and then we saw that she had also interviewed Logan about her books for a second piece for the behavioral scientist. So you've got quite a bit of background on her, don't you? Oh, I definitely do. (laughs) The combination of behavioral science and dating, especially online, is something that has always fascinated me. So I was super excited when this opportunity to chat with her came up. Yeah, good. And you're an economist, so you study decision-making in a wide variety of of situations, right? Especially those with uncertain outcomes. And I think all that qualifies you to weigh in on this, I'd say, doesn't it, Christina? Well, perhaps my insights as an economist are a bit less relevant here than my insights as a woman who has spent quite some time (laughs) on dating apps. Uh. And successfully so, I have to say. Yeah. As far as I know, you two have been happily married for quite some time, maybe even longer than dating apps exist. Isn't that so? (laughs) So you you make us sound sound really old, which in fact is a very true statement. And yes, we we, we, we did do this well before dating apps. At least I did. Well, I'm so glad to be here. I think Logan's book really covers so many interesting insights and also a lot of fun anecdotes that I'm so looking forward to diving into. Let us group. Where should we start? 
Well, maybe we should start with Kurt's crazy idea that all of us are bought into this fantasy. And Christina, you're agreeing already that all those Disney movies, <laughs> did you have Disney movies growing up in Germany? <laughs> for sure, right? In Germany, we even dubbed the movie. So we even have German songs for all of the movies. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That learned something new today. Yeah. Um, well, you know, what I thought was really interesting and, and in part of the conversation, but as well as within the book, is this idea of these these personalities that we have, right? We have that romanticizer, the, the idea that, hey, love should be this Disney-esque type of relationship that just you get that spark, it falls into place, you, you know, you're sleeping beauty and the prince comes and kisses you and wakes you up and you live happily ever, ever after. And it, there's no work involved, right? Or that maximizer piece, which she talked about, where it was looking for that 5% more every time. Um, you, you know, all of these types of things, I think, are really important when we think about, is that going to get us the best relationship? And is that really just some faulty perceptions on our part about what dating and love really, really is? It reminds me of Eli Finkel's description about the different phases and eras of relationships, right? And how it's only in recent years, basically sort of since World War II, that we've really gotten into believing that developed this idea that that our partner bears this responsibility to help us in our own quest for self-fulfillment and self-identity. And, and so it makes sense that that if that's the ethos of, of our general global culture, that it's going to be harder to fulfill, that maximizers are going to be naturally sort of coming out of the woodwork. Maybe even romanticizers are going to be even even bigger. I don't know. Christina, how you, you're you know, re still pretty close. Cl you're a lot closer to the dating world than we are. <laughs> Let me put it that way. <laughs> so I guess it could also be that we develop over time, right? That maybe first we're romanticizers because we have this, we haven't really experienced relationships or we haven't experienced that the setbacks or the reality of a relationship. I think there's also some research when we think about the anticipatory utility of maybe going on vacation, right? That we think like, oh, it's going to be fantastic. It's going to be perfect. And then once we're there, we come to the realization that, yes, some things are really great, but some things are maybe also not that great. And we develop maybe a bit more of a realistic understanding. But I guess that could also lead us to become then more maximizers that we feel that this just wasn't the right relationship. So we need to find somebody better. And then with that other better person, it's going to be even better than before. Yeah, I think that's a, a really interesting piece. I know for, my, for myself, I mean, I, I ended up marrying later in life after having gone through a couple relationships. And I think those relationships taught me a lot. I, I, I think I would have been a very different person if one of those first relationships would have worked. Because you, you mean like, like different in your relationship with with Aaron or, or just different in my 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 relationship I think different just uh, in a on a wide variety of pieces because you learn a lot from experiencing what those relationships were like and then in in retrospection in looking back at them you realize yeah it's not all just wine and roses it's not all chocolates and truffles it is hard work and it's being disappointed with somebody 
but still having, you know, feelings for them and moving forward. And what are all of those pieces of that relationship aspect that you need to pull together and to realize that this is something that you have to put time and energy and effort into in order for it to succeed. And I don't know if I understood that when I was 19 years old, if when I was 20 years old. So Christine, I, I agree that that growth part of this, it might be that you start off with this romanticized ideal of what it should be like, but the world kind of throws things at you and hopefully you can learn from that and don't just double down um, and, and, and not have that, that realistic perspective. <laughs> and Kurt, maybe also the fact, um, so Tim just mentioned that uh, Eli Finkel talks about this um, self-fulfillment through the relationship so that it's something that, that makes you better and helps you grow. Maybe if you get married a little bit later in life and have experienced more of that and have grown as a person without somebody else, but actually by yourself, maybe then you're also less likely to to want that out of a relationship and are actually maybe more happy with what you have because it's a part of your life, but it's not the part of their, your life that makes you grow as a person. Okay, so how does that play into Logan's talking about this idea that that what mathematically when we get to 37%, like if we estimate our dating life to be, you know, from, you know, 18 to 28 and 37% or whatever it was is 26.1 years. Uh, you know, she's kind of saying don't worry about it. Like get to get to that point where you've had something really good. And then whatever the next relationship that comes along that sort of matches that, then you adopt that. Uh, in some ways, it isn't that sort of counter to where, where we're talking about, it takes all this abundance of experience, experience to learn. No, I think what she's saying is actually that it takes that experience that you, you can't expect to find that within that first percentage of, of, of the dates that you go on, that there is this learning curve of, of life that you need to go through. Now, I might be wrong in that, probably am wrong in that, but there is there is that piece where, you know, what what I found interesting was the mathematics behind what people go should be this, or not should be, but I think what people often feel is like, uh, it should be this natural thing. I shouldn't have to really be purposeful about going out and finding love. It should just happen. And it, it, when I talk to my wife about this, she's like going, well, that sounds really clinical. And I'm like going, yeah, it does. It sounds really clinical. It sounds like, you know, but I think there's, there's some really good research behind it. And I think for people that are struggling with this, that's a, it's a great kind of rule of thumb to look at. I mean, I agree that you can think about it that way. In my discussion with Logan, I even asked her if they were thinking about putting that as a feature in the app, maybe saying, okay, you look through 100 profiles, maybe it's time to choose somebody to at least meet for a date. I mean, you <laughs> right, don't have to get married right. to that person, but maybe at least after looking at 100 people, you can go and choose one. There's only 300 people in your area, so this might be a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I also find it a bit hard because if you think about how do I know there's 300 people in my area or a thousand people, right? If you think about that, she talks about it saying, okay, it's your age and that maybe at 26, you should be done looking and then try to choose somebody. But it, 
there's other ways of thinking about this problem saying, well, what are, who are all the people that I could potentially date? And I mean, if you think about everybody in your age range in the whole world that you could potentially meet by traveling or in your town or in your country or, and I think once you get to that, then it gets a little bit overwhelming and you're like, well, what's the right reference point to say, when have I uh, reached 37%? Yeah, and I think there's an interesting piece that you bring up. It's like, so what is the pool that you're pulling from? And and again, I'm not familiar with with dating apps, but I have a I have a good friend who actually used one of them and he ended up dating this woman. So we're in Minneapolis. He ended up dating this woman from Baltimore because he had opened up some some feature of the app. She didn't know that he was from Minneapolis to begin with. And so they ended up with this long distance relationship and now they're married and have a, have a beautiful child and, and all these different pieces. But that you just brought up this really big piece. There might be 300 people in your community, but because of technology, there is probably a, a larger pool. So how do you draw the line? Where do you draw the line in various different pieces of that? Well, I, and I want to get back to Christina's comment that you don't know how many people are in the community. So Hinge doesn't tell you Based on your search criteria, there's X number of candidates for you, you know, in in your geography. It, it, it doesn't actually give you a number? No, it doesn't give you a number. I guess these apps also want to be attractive to daters, right? So you don't really want to tell daters how many people are available. But <laughs> from experience, I can say there is an end to each app. And at some point, they'll show you the same people again. So even in a city like Copenhagen, there's not an unlimited amount of people that, that you can actually reach on a dating app. It sounds like you're speaking from experience there. <laughs> well, and actually, Christina, I want to get to some of your, your stuff on game theory and using game theory as part of this dating piece. So talk a little bit about that. Well, when I started teaching my lecture on game theory, I thought, well, this is really an interesting way to yeah, make game theory a little bit more applicable to my students because we <laughs> yeah. talk about oil auctions and telecommunication auctions and prisoners' dilemmas. But I mean, all these things are not really relevant to the average university student. Um, and boring, super boring too. <laughs> true, true. So I tried to find some interesting uh, texts on that and I found it a little bit online, but I thought, ah, I have to think this through a bit more. So that's why when I decided to write this piece, and of course, I was also on the dating apps uh, looking around and I was trying to find some type of strategy to, well, narrow it down. There's so many people that you could potentially be dating and, well, you can only go on so many dates, um, especially during a worldwide pandemic. Um, so yeah, you really need yeah. to make sure that uh, you're not wasting your time. So, so from a game theory perspective, what are some of the strategies that we could that that our listeners could potentially use if they are thinking about dating and particularly in using a dating app so i think really one of the most important parts is choosing the right app right because you want to find the right sample of people there are apps that are a bit more known for casual hookups or just for having fun and then there are apps like for example hinge where logan works which are a bit more catering towards the people who actually want to find somebody. So they have this tagline called designed to be deleted. Um, mm. So I mean, that definitely speaks to people. And also in my conversation with her, she said uh, that really matters. So they really find that people who come to their app are people who are looking for something serious. 
But that, of course, is not something that everybody has to do. Some people really just want to hook up with somebody and have some fun. And they're maybe 21 and uh, want to meet a lot of people on the weekend. So then maybe for them, an app like Tinder is more appropriate. Uh, so I think that already gives you a good selection of the type of people on the app. Um, and then I think in the next round, you'll have to think about what... Well, you have to think about two things. One thing is your own profile. Like, what am I trying to signal to other users? How am I trying to show myself? And what's special about me compared to these hundreds of other women? Um, and then secondly, you have to think about, okay, what are the types of people that I want to match up with? And it might not be very romantic, I agree. But putting some criteria on what you think could be the right match for you, um, that's the only way to go. Yeah. Well, you talked about cheap cheap talk, right? This idea of watching out for cheap talk, those those signals that are really cheap for people to do versus, you know, more expensive um, signals. Could you explain a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so there's this idea of cheap talk versus costly signaling. And cheap talk is pretty much anything that I can say on an app, but that cannot be verified, right? I could say, oh, I'm an extremely adventurous person and I love hiking on the weekend, but who knows? I mean, I might be a couch potato and sit home all the time. But if I actually have a picture of myself jumping out of an airplane or on top of a mountain, then I actually have to climb that mountain in order to get that picture. So that means it's a costly signal because if I'm not the adventurous types, it's quite expensive for me to have that type of activity only to get a picture of myself where I'm doing that. <laughs> I, I love that. It reminded me uh, of, I've, I've talked to women who have used dating apps at, in Minnesota, and they said, we're really tired of seeing photographs of men with with their their the dead fish that they have just caught. Like, okay, anybody in Minnesota can fish. There's 10,000 lakes. So, you, you know, that's not, you're not differentiating yourself that way. But that's a really interesting point, I think. So, I've used dating apps in different countries, right, when you're traveling. And then you see that different cities have very different things that they like. So, particularly, really? so for example, in Berlin, there's a lot of black and white pictures, a very like artsy, clubbing type of pictures. Then in Copenhagen, there's a lot of men on boats. I mean, that's really the big <laughs> thing here. Uh, in San Diego, of course, everybody's a surfer or somehow outdoors, hiking activities. Um, so yeah, you can really tell where you are in the world by seeing what do people prioritize and what do they put on their dating profile. Oh, that is fascinating. <laughs> wow. Just, it just makes me want to dive into that. You also talked about uh, dominant strategies, right? Dominant strategies are the, the strategies that are most likely to win, right? And, and are they different for men and women? Yeah. So the dominant strategy is really what, what should I play, which is the best response to whatever anybody else could be doing, right? And this can be in a heterosexual situation uh, when we talk about men and women could make sense for the men to actually just swipe right on everybody because they get so few matches that if they would first look at every picture decide if they would like this girl then swipe right then move on to the next one it would take them far too long to get any type of matches but for most women it's actually the other way around right they get a lot of matches so for them it makes more sense to first look at the picture decide if they would like to talk to this person and only swipe right in order to get a match if they actually decided that they would talk to them. So it's really about what do I think is the best use of my time. And for most men, it makes more sense to afterwards check. But before that, just try to get as many matches as possible. 
It reminds me of, of two things. Uh, first is um, uh, Roy Baumeister and Kathleen Voss's work on the economics of sex, right? Uh, sort of who has who has what utility and where 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 there is supply and where there is demand. And I'll, I'll, we'll put a link to that in the show notes because I think that that's an interesting read. But just for the sake of full disclosure, I've only been married for five and a half years. So uh, so. I was married and divorced and had a, a period in my life in my recent history where I was single. And I went to do some speed dating nights and had a night where uh, there were 13 men and 13 women. And one woman was uh, just stunningly beautiful, very, very attractive, and also very uh, laden, as, as far as I could see, with big jewels and this very shabby, chic kind of look. So she, at a glance, the Monet effect, like from far away, she looked like she was just dressed in jeans and a t-shirt. But as you sat across from her, I noticed that the t-shirt was a designer t-shirt that just had just the right sh- you know tears in it. It was probably a $250 t-shirt. And at the end of the night, all of the all the men rate who they'd like to connect with and all the women write who they'd like to connect with. And all of the men except me chose this particular woman who was stunningly beautiful. And and I didn't know this until the, the guy that leads the speed dating comes up to me afterwards and he says, "Tim, are you okay? Is there anything wrong? You, you know, I'm like, "No, everything's great." And he said, "You didn't choose this this particularly stunning woman. He said, I thought everybody would want to match with her. And I said, she just looked like a, a train wreck to me, you know, like it was just not going to be a good match. Her lifestyle and my lifestyle just weren't going to match up. And he said, Oh, I said, did she, did she choose anybody, any of the men? And he said, no, not one. <laughs> so the, <laughs> so the, most of the men were adopting the, the, the dominant, their strategy of they were swiping right basically because they were hoping to get a hit and she adopted her strategy of choosing no one. And I thought you got your strategy from watching A Beautiful Mind, right? Where John Nash, it was his friend, <laughs> is in the bar. The beautiful blonde comes in, the four brunettes, and he says, we have to go for the brunettes. Otherwise, uh, nobody's going to get anybody. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's exactly what the dominant strategy is for that. It's, it's, yeah, that's perfect game theory. I mean, the, the inventor of game theory right there. Well, it, it, it reminds me, I, again, I'm, I started dating well before apps and different things, but I remember actually being out one time, and, and I think this is kind of, uh, applicable to, to this. And and we were out and, and within our group, there was this tall blonde woman who, again, very attractive. And we were out dancing at a club in, in San Diego, actually. We, we were down in San Diego and we were watching it. We were, we were out there. And, and she said, just watch this. And she just like over, you know, she's a little bit taller. She looked over across the, the dance floor. She pointed at this, that this guy turned her finger around and just did a little wag with her finger to come here. And the guy like literally just wove throughout the the dance floor to come over. And, you know, it was just that much peace. And I said, I don't care how good I looked, um, which I obviously don't. There was no way that I could ever like point at a woman (laughs) like that and just do that and and have a woman come over. And I think there's a there's a definite difference in obviously some underlying components with between males and females in, in this in this world. You're probably evolutionary in nature to to a degree, but I don't know. It's it's interesting that that dominant effect is like, all right, men swipe right, get get as many potential matches as you can, and women be more discerning 
we should say here that that is uh, that was an American article who talked about this, and also I guess here was an American experience because. For a while, I lived in Sweden, and there it's actually quite the other way around. So there, it's more the women who go after the men. So, wow. um, so maybe it's culturally and not evolutionary. Cultural. That's okay. So count me, count me corrected, because I'm. You should have moved. We both should have moved to Sweden. I guess that's. <laughs> I would have still been discerned against. So that would have been. <laughs> it would have been. But, you know, but Christina, you you found love in in Copenhagen. Yes, I found love in Denmark. Actually, not in Copenhagen, so I didn't set oh, my, okay. <laughs> um, I didn't set the range small enough. But still, but very, in Den- very but lucky. still in Denmark, exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah. so yes, I found found love in Denmark on the app. Uh, so that has been actually a great experience during COVID. During COVID, yes, and I have to say it was actually I think the first match on that app. Um, so the only first person I talked to uh, on Hinge um, also wow. turned out to be the right one. So wow. I think their algorithms work pretty well. <laughs> That's good. I, I guess so. Yeah. So getting back to Logan's conversation. Yes. Right? So, um, one of the things that I loved about this conversation was this idea of OSOs, right? So um, we need other, you know, significant others that are in our lives. So just thinking through that, Tim, thoughts on that? I mean, what, what do you what do you think? I wanted uh, to spend more time on the definition of OSO because there's a part of me that feels like for a long time, we've had sort of classic uh, girlfriend weekends. We've had uh, drinking buddies. Uh, you know, there are relationships that, that we've had traditionally at least in the United States, of men going out with a bunch of guys that are just there to kind of hang out and, you know, do a common thing. Maybe it's a hunting weekend or, a, you know, a sports weekend or something like that. And, and women um, have, have had a, a variety of social engagements with, with a close group of girlfriends. Um, and I wonder, would, does that fit the OSO? I don't, Christina, did you talk to Logan a, a deeper about that? I'm just wondering if you've got any insights. Because I wasn't clear how, for lack of a better word, intimate the relationship in an OSO would or could be because it sounded to me kind of like it's a it's a it's a good buddy thing i mean it doesn't imply any kind of sexual intimacy i by any means i didn't get that but but i was just wondering is there is there sort of a um a, a general sense of of emotional intimacy though between these between two people who are osos i think it's an interesting point so we didn't get more into it but maybe I could say from my personal experience, not having been as lucky as you guys for having so long relationships, I definitely have some friends who I've been very close friends with for about 20 years now. And if you compare that to any type of relationship I might start now or I have now, that's going to be, well, it will take some time until that's at the same level as um, what I have as a new partner. So I I guess what you could think about is having these very long-term relationships that are on a friendly level, um, but that yeah might even exist longer than most marriages today. Well, I, I want to go because you, you talked about it doesn't have to be sexual. And there was, um, so I was just on uh, Clubhouse last night and actually 
uh, with our friend John John Levy, and he had this this thing about sex, dating, and romance. And uh, along with that, she, he had um, Dr. Nicole Prouse, who has done some really interesting work on like some of the physical aspects of sex and various different pieces of this. And and she talked about this one study, and I'm, I apologize if I get this wrong. Um, and so. Uh, I'll go back into the, the show notes in case we do, and we'll correct anything there. So look at the show notes, folks. Um, but she was talking about, they did this research that was actually, it was in, you invited somebody in and it was about touch. And it was very uh, almost erotic touch in, in very private parts and about how people felt about that. And what she found really interesting is that people knew this going in and they invited people who, who weren't necessarily romantic partners with them. And then she was really uh, surprised at the number of people and that it was actually a very positive overall piece of having this, what would be considered probably a very um, sexual type touch um, that went on for 15 minutes. And then the, the, the elements out of that were, closer to that person, very positive, very uh, well-being from the person in general about them. And so I, I think it's interesting that even as we think about, um, you know, these others that are in our lives and we kind of put all of our components of, of that romance and, and sex part in with our romantic partner is that there may be a role and probably I don't want to over you know, generalize this and in, in various different pieces, but there are other roles that, that, you know, other people can play within our lives um, that may have an important aspect to our long-term well-being. Mm. You guys are both looking at me with blank well, stares. It, well, it's it, it only because it's, it's, it's new, you know, it, it, it's new. I've actually heard someone mention this um, before and I, and I failed to, to, to look it up, but but it's it's curious that what could be perceived as a sexual encounter ends up having not it, it, the the if I understand it correctly the long term experience is not increased sexual contact between these two people but there is a deeper sense of connectedness. And that's my them. understanding, and again, I'll go back and I'll look at this and, and make sure that that I've got that right. But yes, yeah. I, that that's my understanding, and I think to. To Logan's component of having these people fill different needs that we have and that expecting that one romantic partner to be the yeah. one person to satisfy all of these different desires and needs that we have is probably uh, a little asking too much of, of that one person. And you, you brought it up right, Tim. We, we did have these relationships. I mean, we, we still do of, you know getting together with your guy friends, getting together with your, your girlfriends, but even just mixed couples and having various different pieces and just your your communal group of friends. I know, you know, when I was in my 20s, we had a great group of friends that we would go and do a whole bunch of stuff. And I got a lot of, you know, my needs met of just that social interaction through those various different people. And I think part of what we were talking about was in COVID, how is that actually playing out? Because as much as we'd like to having that same interaction, you, you know, a hunting weekend is, is may not be able to happen because of COVID. Uh, you know, that, that 
going out and drinking wine um, with your girlfriends and doing whatever, you know, that is may not be able to happen. And it's just not the same. So we need to make sure that we maintain those and, and, and do that. I mean, I guess Logan's book is so much full of all this actionable advice. So maybe one actionable advice could also be, you guys probably know these 36 questions to fall in love that were written down in the New York Times. It's this idea that you sit down with a new date and you go through these 36 questions and they go from not so intimate to more intimate. But I think the original research was actually about just connecting people. So it actually had nothing to do with falling in love. It was just to see how quickly could you bring two strangers uh, to get to know each other better. So maybe that's also one thing to think about that we can just do that with our other significant others, not necessarily just a partner, but to build these bit more intimate connections between people. Oh, I love that idea. I think that's a fantastic idea, Christina. It's interesting. So uh, we, we kind of talked about this in the, in the interview, but, you know, Tim and I just had a conversation with Shelley Archambault, who uh, uh, was really an interesting conversation because she talked about having these goals in her life and wanting to be a CEO. And literally she was dating this guy who she felt was fantastic and wonderful, but she had to put these questions out to him about what are your life goals? And are you okay if I become the main breadwinner and you are the one who needs to stay home with the kids? And this was in the seventies, well before that was a norm in, at least in the United States where that was even a, a thing where it's like, Oh, um, and I think, some of those conversations that people have in, in dating. And I, I'm not familiar with 36 questions, but I'm just wondering how, you know, some of those, those more intimate, more personal conversations that are about long-term life goals are important to have in the dating uh, component. And, and I think we try to talk a little bit to Logan about when to have those. Are you, are, do you have those right away? Should you wait a little, you know? Mm. I think there's also the school of life, which do these, um, they have a how to get married book and it's actually a workbook and it brings up all these different types of uh, questions. And then you can also make plans. It's a little bit similar to what, uh, what Logan also has in her book on the, on the, type of marriage or relationship contract. And um, sometimes I think having these questions written down can make it a bit easier to talk about hard topics, right? Because just bringing up out of the blue, oh, I wanted to say that um, you have to stay home or how much time are you going to stay um, at, at home when we have a child or what annoys you about me that you don't want to bring up, but it's maybe still <laughs> annoying and could be good to talk about it. So I really think having these little questions as an outside prompt, so it doesn't feel like it's coming from you, but actually randomly drawing a card and then it has a question on that. I think that's actually quite helpful. Tim, yeah. we, we ought to have this. We, we ought to get those cards and do that yes. between us. I, I was just thinking, well, I, I wasn't thinking of doing it for us. Well, actually. I was thinking just the things that annoy you <laughs> that still after, you know. Oh, man, I got of- a list. I, got- <laughs> <laughs> I just, I keep it right here. I keep it handy. So oh, you add to it every day. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not true. That, that That's not true. All right. Well, I think that wraps up our grooving session. Christina, just thank you. This was fantastic. Your insights, your commentary, everything was just absolutely wonderful. And, you know, we're going to have to have you back at some point. Oh, I will definitely come back. Would you be one of our OSOs? Of course, but only if we do the 36 questions. 
Okay. Oh, fantastic. Well, everybody, thank you. Uh, and hang on as we have our bonus track coming up. Hey, Groovers, this is Kurt with your bonus track and groove idea for the week. The conversation with Logan Yuri should be underscored by her remarkable career trajectory. As you listen to her comments, remember that she ran the Irrational Lab at Google, became a dating coach, then the director of relationship science at Hinge and is most recently the author of the very nicely researched How to Not Die Alone. Her ability to leverage good behavioral science to create the frame for her book is not just unique, it's particularly informative for readers. In a world where finding love in the pandemic presents more challenges than any modern humans have had to deal with, we are glad she wrote her book and shared a conversation with us. In the first part of our conversation, we focused on using behavioral science to improve decision-making in helping to get yourself ready for dating, to maximize the experience of dating, and to help make the relationship stick once you've found who you want to be with. The second part of our conversation gently touched on the concept of communal living and our general need for more OSOs, that is, other significant others. And Logan believes that we could all do better by having the right people to share ideas and topics we love uh, with, and most importantly, not burden our partner with all of those things. Our additional interests are too wide and too varied to lay at the feet of our primary relationship, and that got us to thinking. So for our Groove Idea of the Week, we'd like you to consider how to fulfill your interest in music or sports or crafts or hobbies Do you implicitly or explicitly ask your partner to be involved in things that aren't really in line with their interests? And more importantly, are there other people in your life that you can turn to as OSOs for your hobbies and other interests? And if you were doing that with OSOs before the pandemic, how are you balancing and maintaining those relationships today? As always, let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Behavioral Grooves. And we hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation with Logan Urie. And we hope you enjoyed how we brought our good friend, Christina Grovert, to the grooving session with us. It was fun for us, and we hope it worked for you as well. And looking to the future, we hope that this week you go out and find your groove. <laughs>